invite your attention this morning to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, beginning at verse 16, in just a moment. Context for today's reading. A few chapters earlier, we've come to the end of the reign of Solomon, and the kingdom has split, caused primarily of Solomon's infidelity to the Lord. Now, in the northern kingdom, it's about 80 or 90 years after the days of Solomon, they have fallen completely into the worship of Baal, the storm of God. Therefore, the God to them of rain and therefore the God of fruitful crops and prosperity. Ahab, you remember the name, and also his wife Jezebel, way, way off leading the country of Israel, northern Israel, into apostasy. But then came Elijah to confront them, but they had departed from the covenant, broken covenant bonds with God chapter earlier, God had showed himself faithful individually to Ahab, providing for him in time of drought. And then we saw also that he was faithful in taking care of the widow at Zarephath and her son. But now we come to a time in the narrative where now God shows himself faithful to the whole nation and calls them to repentance. 1 Kings chapter 18 Verse 16, And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, replied Elijah, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summons the people over all Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah and eat at Je- that eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was on the Mediterranean coast. We know it today as the city of Haifa. Elijah went therefore before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? In other words, how long will you try to worship Baal and try to worship Yahweh simultaneously? He said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. 
There was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Keeps going, heightens the tension in the narrative. Later on at noon, all morning long, they're trying to call on Baal. Now at noon, Elijah began to taunt them or mock them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued in their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. Notice repetition from earlier in the passage. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed, about twenty-four quarts. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jar, large jars of water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered them. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. For two reasons he states. So that these people will show, know that you, O Lord, are God. Second reason, and that you are turning their hearts back again. can also be translated that you have turned their hearts back already. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Notice the contrast. Didn't just burn up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil that they sat on. And licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. You don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Let's sing together, Lord Potter.
verse 21 of chapter 18, Elijah poses a question to the people, said, how long will you waver between two opinions? When I was about 17, 18 years old, I started to court my wife, now of about 50 years, and it took several months before I could even get her to talk to me. Then after several more months, it took longer even to get her to even go out with me. And then, after a little while, several months, it finally happened. And I'd suppose that it took a while for her to really realize the magnitude of how handsome I was and how charming that I was. <laughs> and a little later, oh, we were talking about that, and I asked her, I said, what in the world took so long? And she said, well, uh, one time she was wavering and canceled the date. Another time I talked to her a date and I got stood up. A lot of wavering going back and forth. I said, what in the world's wrong? She said, well, you are the most conceited, stuck-up young man I'd ever met in my life. <laughs> it wasn't the charm that won her over. What won her over was I had a first cousin that had been dating her sister for several months. And he got me in the back door, you might say. <laughs> Later on, on a more serious note, and when the Lord began to work mightily in my life and in my mind to bring me into the more of a standard kind of ministry rather than just a lay ministry and being in a professional position, after a while I wavered back and forth from one position to the other. Should I do it? Should I not? Can I step out in faith like that? Should I? Is God's providence what he's already provided for me, telling me this is the place I want you to stay? And I wavered back and forth, I think, for at least three years. Which way should I go? Some of us here today, we are in position spiritually, maybe in a secular situation. God is working in our hearts, maybe through the word, maybe through his spirit and circumstances around us, that our life circumstances need to change to some degree. Earlier I talked to a lady that was going through a tremendous amount of change in their family's life. Something a young family would never expect to happen. God is moving in her life. Is God moving in your life? Here the specific circumstance was that God's people had strayed from the worship of the true and the living God. Some of us here today, we've come perhaps from a background where we believe or you believed in some degree of sacramentalism. You believe that salvation came through an organization. It came through certain activities or rituals, religious rites. If you did all the right things at the right time, then God would move on your heart, put you into his people. And here your face was in this church with a doctrine of 
I have to believe, they believe that salvation and right relationship with God is strictly by grace through faith. And I cannot work for it or earn it. Maybe God is poking around at your life in a way and you're beginning to recognize that even if you feel like you're in proper relationship to this church, you've begun to see in your life in different places where in some degree you're not fully giving over, given over to God. You listen at sometimes and feel your hearts tugged away by greed and pride and we feel like we have to worship our needs and worship our own thoughts perhaps rather than giving completely over to God's word. Maybe you feel drawn away from the purity of the faith towards looking to television preachers and thinking that somehow you can call down your own blessings by a word of faith, as they call it, and you're lured away to the health and wealth of prosperity gospel, and you think there's some mystical, powerful thing you can give over to, and you can just bring God's blessings on your own. Maybe you're stirred and wondering about a position God's bringing you to, maybe in service in the church, or maybe just in your home, and you're wondering, can I really trust God? Or can I have one foot in the world? Can I be a Christian and still entertain the things that entertain the world? Can I still love, really love money and what it brings? Can I really love power and position over other people? Can I really entertain a little bit of sensuality? Can I really pamper my pride a little bit? In other words, perhaps we're not allured by the false gods of the world, but we're allured and holding on to the false gods and worshiping ourselves. People of Israel were in that position. They'd totally gone over to worship the Baals, the false gods of the Phoenician people. Come a crisis in their time. There was a calamity God had brought upon the land because they had broken covenant with them. They'd been under a drought for three years and there wasn't any water left. There wasn't any food left. Came to that point, a crisis point, in verse 20. And Elijah went before the people, called all the people together, verses before, called all the false prophets of Baal that served under Jezebel, got them all together. And Elijah said in verse 21, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. If any other God out there, false deity of some pagan religion, some made-up God of our world today, they paint as a true God, but he's really a false God, not the God of the Bible. Maybe the God, the idol of self in your life. If God is God, follow him. One of these other gods, follow him. If you're God, if you think you're God, follow yourself. 
tension rises a little bit in verse 22. Elijah proposed this contest. Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So get two Baals. We'll have a contest. 450 guys on one side and me on the other side. He said, prepare the sacrifice. Take all the time you need. And they began to call, in verse 25, after they'd chosen, gave them the first choice, which bull to choose to sacrifice. Then they called on the name of the Lord, the name, of, excuse me, of Baal. O Baal, answer us. And they did it from morning until noon. And they shouted. But there was no response. Note here, no response, calling out to the false God. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, verse 27, after four or five hours, Elijah began to taunt them, mock them. Maybe you need to shout a little louder. Maybe he's resting. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. He posed to him. Just shout louder. And they shouted even louder in verse 28 and slashed themselves with swords and spears. That was their custom until the blood flowed. And then midday had passed. They continued in their frantic prophesying. Sometimes you'll notice false so-called false religion in our day. And if things don't, don't happen the way they think they ought to happen, if they can't get the spirit to answer in the way they want, what happens? They give it even more frantic in their worship. They begin to do all sorts of extraordinary things, fall out in the floor, go into some unknown ecstatic speech, fall out again. Start to bark like dogs. All kinds of extraordinary things they think is going to bring God's blessing on them. Happened all the way down to the time of the evening sacrifice. Maybe six, seven o'clock in the evening. But again, in verse 29, note, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention, just like in the previous verse up there. The idea is absolute silence, no response from any source. And I can assure you of this. You get into difficult circumstances spiritually, mentally, physically, financially, whatever it might be. You get into unusual, calamitous kinds of situations and you are depending on some kind of ecstatic speech, some kind of weird sign from heaven. You're depending on a God that is not the God of the scriptures, the God of somebody's, the figment of somebody's imagination, some false teaching, prosperity, positive thinking, call it into effect, to call it into reality yourself, speak your own reality, all that nonsense. Let me assure you in your difficult circumstances, you will hear nothing. There will be no response, just like it was in Elijah's day. And then the contrast comes in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, 
come here to me. Those guys have had their chance. What did he do? He took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. Because, what does it say there in verse 30? The altar of the Lord was in ruin. They've been paying so much attention to their false worship of a God that pleased them. The altar of God, the true and the living God, had fallen into disrepair. It was ruined. Oftentimes, people today, even God's people, we will allow the altar, you could say the true worship, the simple worship of God, to fall into disrepair. You get into difficult circumstances, you start to cry out to the Lord, and you sometimes, maybe you'll remember my personal worship, my personal altar, you might say, with God. Where I meet with God every day, maybe early in the morning or maybe in the evening before I go to bed. And I take some time to read and speak to God in prayer. And hopefully God would speak to me in prayer. And maybe I sing a a, a psalm or sing a psalm. Maybe pray. Meditate for a while on the scriptures. But we forsake it. Let our personal altar go into ruin. Even as tragically oftentimes men, we let our family altar fall into repair, disrepair. We don't lead our family in prayer. We don't read the scriptures with our wives and children. We don't sing a hymn or a psalm or even recite a psalm. Lay our cares about this world and situations we come across. We allow our personal altar to fall down. We let our family altar fall down. And we wonder why ill circumstances fall into our life. Not far behind when people let their personal altar fall into disrepair and their family altar fall into disrepair. It won't be long if that's the trend of a whole church. The whole church's worship will fall into disrepair and leave the pure and simple pure worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and search out all these things, these alternatives in the world. But Elijah said, he reminded them Verse 31, the Lord had come to you saying to Israel, your name shall be Israel. He put his name on them. Israel means God strives. Or you might say God perseveres. He's persistent. When he calls the people to himself, he's not going to leave them alone. You can let your altar fall down at home fall down in your personal life, but God will not allow his own children to live continuously and permanently in sin and in rebellion. Crisis comes. It come for Israel. He had named them for himself. What did he do? With the stones, he built up an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough 
to hold two seas or about 24 quarts of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. But then here comes the contrast or the heightening of the situation. He went on, filled four large jars with water and poured it on the offering and on the wood. They didn't do that with the Baal offering. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. Three times they poured four large jars of water on the wood and on the sacrifice. To the point, it says in the narrative, that the water ran out of the altar and filled up the trench they had dug around the altar. And then at the time of sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and said, in verse 36, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant. I've done all these things. It's your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. And he gives two reasons why he wants God to answer him. So that these people will know, O Lord, that you are God. And then you're turning their hearts back again. Alternate translations even go to the point saying, you have already turned their hearts back. What has to happen, one of the reasons God brings calamity and heartache in difficult times into our lives, when we have let our altars, our personal and family altars, fall down. He brings it, circumstances in our life, to point out when we get to a situation that's bigger than we are, that we can't handle, in our own resources, in our own time, in our own physical strength, he gets it to the place like he did them in this terrible drought. He gets them to the point to show them that he is the only one that can break the drought. He's the only one that can suffice, bring them through all these circumstances so that they will know all these other things. The bales there, but in our lives, our pride, our treasures, our gifts, our talents, our skills, our resources, all those things eventually will come to a place where they are not enough. We are not our own gods. We cannot bring about our own reality just by the force of our will. That is, when we think we can do that, we have made ourselves to be God. And we cannot worship our own desires, our own assets, and we have to come to a place in our life to realize that God is the only true and the living God. And to worship any other deity, whether it's pagan or whether it's homemade, or whether it's an idol we create in our hearts, is to rebel against God. And if you're one of God's children, he will not let it stand. You must confess that God is absolutely sovereign over all time and eternity, over all the acts of men, even sinful men. God rules and reigns. He said also he wanted to know that, but also that God was turning their hearts back again. Another truth they needed to realize was that they could not resolve their own circumstances. They could not, by their own force of will, by their own affections, by their own intellect, they could never right the ship before God. Fallen mankind hates God. God. 
It lives continually in rebellion against God. And the only time we come to God or will come to God is because by the power of his grace, he turns our hearts. He moves and renews our hearts, softens our will, enlightens our minds to the things of Christ. And by supernatural work of God, calls us to himself, gives us new life. And Elijah said, you need to realize that, that you had never come back to God's blessings unless it was by his power and by his mercy. God has brought perhaps today some calamitous events, some circumstances where we're wavering back and forth. Can we trust ourselves? Can we trust something other than the true and the living God? We need to realize today it's only by God's mercy and grace that we can even see or understand anything of God's will. Let's pray today. Be thankful that God will turn our hearts. But then verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, remember there wasn't anything that happened in contrast to the Baal altar. No fire came at all. But now here the fire comes. Consumed the bull. And then it consumed the wood. And then the stones were burned. And then the soil was consumed. And all the water that had come off the, the offering and fallen in flowed out from saturated offering of wood. Saturated, fell out into the ditch. And the fire of God got that. What it's pointing to is the absolute futility in the inaction of Baal and the absolute conquest of God. Absolute. On the cross, shadowed here. When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sin, all of our guilt for sin, all of our self-worship, all of our idolatry that we have dealt with in our lives, all of the wickedness, all of our past nature, all of not just our nature of sin and our desire for sin, but the actual sins themselves were placed on Christ and he paid all of the price to the point that God turned his back, so to speak, and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back? Because all of my sin was placed on him. That's enough to turn anybody. But total and absolute payment through the blood, the perfect blood, the perfect obedience of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, applied in its place, total and absolute pardon from all sin, for all of eternity, for all his elect, for all time. Absolute and total. To the point where here the prophets of Baal were completely exposed as ignorant 
completely exposed as an abomination before God? When Christ did what I just said, Paul says in the book of Colossians that it was so perfect, it was so complete, it was so absolute that he made a spectacle just as Elijah made and God made a spectacle of the foolish priests. God, through Christ, has made a spectacle for all of eternity of his power of consuming and burning up all of our guilt. I think even this week or last week there was a documentary on television about the nuclear bomb, the A-bomb. What happens when the nuclear bomb is dropped at the center of the fire? The heat is so intense, it doesn't just burn things, it consumes things. Vaporizes. Human beings, you can't even find a particle of them anymore. What's left? The heat is so great that wood and steel and stones, granite, so hot it fuses together to its inseparable. Jesus' blood, his perfect life, his complete sacrifice, totally consumed all of our guilt and all of our sin and fused us together with Christ as our head. There was a response to this event, verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Not Baal, not any other pagan deity, not Mohammed, not Buddha, not you. He is God. And see their response that Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get in the way or get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Real repentance. Is there some false religion in your life? Clinging to some idea that somehow a religious rite of some sort or some confession made to some religious figure is going to save your soul? Do you worship yourself hoping your own intellect and your own spiritual insight is going to solve your circumstances? You can be your own God. So many wicked and false prophets on television tell you, you are a little God. You create your own reality. What did they do? They slaughtered the prophets of Baal. There's a false idol in your life, a false religious practice that you love. You need to pray to God today and bring it to God's altar and say, God, cut its throat. Kill it.
yank it out of my life. God, if I made my pride an idol, Lord, cut the throat of my pride. God, if I made greed, if I made sensuality, I made power, if I made my career, if I made my family my idol, God, cut it out of my life. Slay it today. And help me to truly say, the Lord, he's God. Jesus reigns. Let's bow. Father, we bless your name for your grace and allowing us to have your word. We thank you for your spirit that quickens our hearts. So many times we've gone astray. We have wavered between two positions. True and absolute obedience and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ trying to stand with one foot in the world. Father, there be an idol in our lives today. We confess that you alone are God. And we beg you to slaughter the idols of our life. We ask it in Jesus' name.